So we turn back uh, to the passage of Scripture we read in Peter's first letter and uh, chapter 2, and read again in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. But especially where it says that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The task of the church, the abiding task of the church, is to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, to proclaim Christ and all that God has done for his people eh, through him. It is not the task of the church to prove the existence of God. That is our default position. We do not doubt the existence of God. It is not our job as a church to go out into the world and to try to prove the existence of God. And I remember many years, not long after I came to faith, having various discussions with people on the website uh, trying to prove the existence of God and focusing upon, you know, various aspects of God's creation. But in the end, I realized it was a futile exercise because the people that I was dealing with on the other side, uh, you know, their minds were simply fixed and they had no uh, desire at all to acknowledge that there is a God. So the main task of the church is to proclaim God. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a time and a place where we can engage with other people and debate the fact that God uh, exists. And as Paul says in uh, the first chapter of Romans, you know, the, the evidence of God has been made clear to all people if they have eyes to look around them and see uh, the power of God manifest in his created order. Philosophy seeks the meaning of our existence, but sadly in our present day and age, the philosophers are not interested in the existence of God. Modern philosophers, by and large, but not all, reject God because we live in a sophisticated and scientific age. And the idea of a God, a creator, somebody who brought everything into being from nothing, is simply not rational. But in the golden age of philosophy, in ancient Greece, belief in many different gods and many different deities was very much a part of philosophical thought. The Athens of Paul's day was living very much uh, on its reputation from uh, the great days of the the philosophers who had preceded Paul by several uh, centuries. But it was still the place to go if you wanted to study uh, philosophy. And Paul, as we know in, in Acts chapter 17, when he was invited to speak to the Areopagus in Athens, that gathering of the philosophers as he wandered around the city, he saw many shrines, shrines to different gods, which was an indication of the beliefs that people had in deities, in a pantheon of gods. And if you wanted to pray for certain issues, you would go to a certain shrine and you would pray to that particular god, a god who would bless you in one particular sphere and another god who would bless you in a different uh, sphere, uh, but there, were a, there was also a, sh- a shrine that Paul came across 
that was inscribed with the words to an unknown God. And although they had all these different gods that they prayed to, just in case there was one God out there that they'd overlooked, that they'd missed, uh, and who could possibly help them in their time of need, they had this shrine to this unknown God, whoever he or she was. And Paul, when he began his address to the city's philosophers, began, now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And the world in which we live, by and large, to them, God is unknown. They are very ignorant about the Lord. You can watch any uh, program on television, where any quiz program, and invariably, if there's a question about the Bible, and then people pass it by. They simply do not have the answer, or they make a wild uh, guess. And it is the task of the church to proclaim uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in this letter, Peter makes it very clear that this is the function of the church, the church itself being uh, the body of the Lord's uh, people. It is to proclaim, to declare the praises uh, of God. Uh, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a reminder that uh, there was a time in the lives of all of us, I'm sure, when we lived in spiritual darkness, where we didn't see the, uh, the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom it says in Song of Solomon, he is all together lovely, he is flawless, he is the fairest amongst a 10,000. And the man or woman without Christ lives in darkness, the darkness of unbelief, the darkness of superstition, the darkness of skepticism. They cannot declare the praises of God because they don't know him. And if you don't know somebody, then you can't describe them. You can't talk about them to somebody else. I was visiting some people in their home uh, the other day, and I think three times I counted the man uh, touching wood and, and fingers crossed, this kind of superstitious nonsense. And I'm sure that many of us in the past have, have done that, but when we came to know Jesus, we realized the futility of such gestures. We trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. And the recipients of Peter's letter, these people who are scattered about in, in an area which generally is, is in Turkey today, they were being a persecuted in chapter 1, verse 6. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly what kind of persecution the recipients of this letter were receiving. They weren't being arrested, we don't believe. They weren't being thrown to the lions in the various arenas in Roman cities, but they would have been mocked for their faith. They would have been laughed at and regarded as being superstitious because they were following a, this man who supposedly uh, had died and risen from the grave far away uh, in uh, Palestine. And we might think, well, if these people were being persecuted rather than declaring the praises of God, would it not have been better for them to, to remain quiet and thus not draw attention to themselves? But not according to Peter, because Peter saw in their suffering the hand of the Lord, refining and purifying his people, removing the dross of worldliness. And it's a reminder that 
when we go through difficult times, when things are not working out as we had hoped and as we had planned, it may well be that the Lord is at work in our lives, trying to refine us, trying to, uh, to make us purer, trying to eradicate the dross of worldliness. And so the Lord's people here, the recipients of this letter, they, they were not to keep silent. They were not to go around as secret believers. They were to declare the praises of God. And to do that means coming out into the open. It means uh, putting your head over the parapet. It means being known as a follower of Jesus. And Peter here uh, makes four points that I want to look at briefly about the Lord's people. And the first one is that they are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And uh, later on in that same passage in John 15, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And throughout the Bible, the focus is upon God's choice, God choosing individuals, God choosing families, God choosing tribes, God choosing whole nations. And we see so often in Scripture how God went out of his way, how Jesus went out of his way to, uh, to convert an individual, and through that individual, that person's family. But on the way, he may have bypassed many, many other uh, people. And we live in an age of choice. We're always told that democracy is about choice, the freedom to exercise choice. And God also exercises choice. He chooses some, but others he does not. He goes out of his way to, to, to save an individual. Remember how Jesus went into the boat. He went across the Sea of Galilee to, to the land of the Gerasenes, and he was met by the demoniac, this man who, uh, who had, was possessed by a legion of evil spirits and having freed the man of his demonic possession. And when the townspeople came and they saw the man fully dressed and in his right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus and and uh, they were afraid. Uh, and this man wanted to go with Jesus when Jesus went back into the boat. Uh, and yet Jesus said, go and tell uh, your family what the Lord has done for you. He crossed the lake, uh, risking the, the, the weather that we knew was, was, could be so wild. And he saved this one man. And then he went back again to the, to the other uh, shore. That's the way God works. He, he will go a considerable distance just to save an individual because he has a plan and a purpose for that individual's life. And those of you here tonight who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder what kind of path God followed in order to bring you to himself. What kind of path did God go on in, in order to save you, to rescue you, and to redeem you? And when we think of the choices that God himself made, we, we might ask the question, why Abraham out of all the thousands of people who lived in the city of Ur of the, the Chaldeans? Why Naaman amongst all the, the Syrians? Why Nineveh out of all the pagan cities of the Middle East to whom God sent Jonah to call upon them uh, to repent? Why the woman at the well in her town out of all the other communities in Samaria? Why the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter, why Zacchaeus, and we could go on and uh, on. We do not know God simply exercises his right, his sovereign right to choose some 
but not others. Jacob, I have loved, we read in Scripture, but Esau, I have hated. And what a wonderful privilege to be chosen by God. I remember when I was young, I was hopeless at sports. I, I quite liked, you know, playing football and cricket, but I was no good at it. Just didn't seem to have the coordination. And sometimes eh, at school or when I was in the Life Boys and the Boys Brigade, our leaders would, would single out a couple of the older boys and said, right, you pick a team and uh, we're going to be playing football uh, this afternoon. And so they'd go along the line and they would choose this one and they would choose that one. And I would always say, choose me, choose me. But they never would. They never would because they knew I was actually hopeless to left eh, feet. Uh, but how wonderful that God doesn't, doesn't choose us because we can play football or we can hit a ball or something of that nature. He chooses us simply because he is a God of amazing grace. We don't know why he chooses some people and not others. But how wonderful to be noticed by the Lord of the universe, to be plucked from the dung heap, to be snatched up like a burning stick from the fire, to be lifted out of the the miry clay, to be called out of darkness into his glorious and wonderful light, and all because God is exercising his sovereign choice. I will choose whom I will choose. And in Luke 10, all things have been committed to me by my Father, says Jesus. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Chosen in Christ before the very foundation of the world. Chosen to be jewels displayed on the king's crown. Why? Who knows? In the hymn it says, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me has been made known, nor why unworthy as I am he claimed me for his own. If you're chosen to play football for Uh, the school team or athletics or something of that nature, uh, then when you go home, you're all excited. You want to share with your family and your friends. I've been chosen to represent the school. And yes, I was hopeless at football and cricket, but I did represent the school once at uh, the half mile. And uh, I came third in in, uh, the half mile representing my school in the South London Championships. What I didn't tell people was that there were only three of us competing but that's not the point uh, and when I was chosen to represent the school I went home excited to tell mum and dad I'm, I'm going to run the half mile uh, for the school against all the other schools in South London they were so pleased but if the Lord has chosen us if he has chosen us uh, to, to be his servants would we not want to share that wonderful news with, with other their people. So that's the first thing. You are a, a chosen race. And the second thing is a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood, which simply means that uh, we are priests serving in the royal household. In biblical times, priests were chosen and they were set apart in order to uh, serve in the temple worship. And the Lord's people today also have a priestly function, no longer to conduct the sort of sacrifices that took place in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, but to point people to the ultimate sacrifice, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
It is direct to direct people to the altar of the cross, to point out that the altar is bare, it's empty, the cross is empty, he's no longer there, he has risen, he has gone into the power of an endless life. And we're, uh, we're calling on people to, to, to come to Jesus. That's how priestly function, uh, pointing people to uh, Jesus. But God's chosen people also have a sacrifice that only they can conduct. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your uh, bodies um, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So God doesn't choose us and, and then expect us to go off and do our own thing and, and, and go here and there and, and do whatever we want. He, he chooses us that we might serve him. And when you look at the lives of so many people down through the years who have, who have uh, risen to, uh, to the challenge to serve Christ, their lives have been lives of sacrifice. We read of missionaries uh, in the past who went off on sailing ships to the other side of the world who were told to take their coffins with them because it was unlikely that they would ever uh, return. These people left the sophistication of the Western world and they went out into other parts of the world where life was primitive. It was a sacrifice for them. Many years ago, I, I knew a couple who were studying for the Church of Scotland to be missionaries, and they went to a, a, a part of Africa, um, not a particularly developed part of Africa, uh, and they were living out in the bush, and uh, they were living in very primitive conditions, and the wife had a real fear of snakes. She was afraid that you know, at night, a snake, a black mamba, a spitting cobra, something of that nature might come slithering into the house where they were living. And for her, it was a real sacrifice, living under the fear of snakes. But the Lord brought them through it, and the Lord uh, blessed them in the work that they were doing. There are many, many uh, sacrifices that the Lord's people go through simply in order to tell people about Jesus we often hear criticism of missionaries. They say, oh, they went out into the world and they, and they were responsible for bringing to an end all sorts of uh, uh, colorful and interesting ceremonies and, and uh, customs. Yes, interesting customs like cannibalism and, and uh, sooty where the Indian widow was put on the funeral pyre alive. And when I was in Loch Gilbert, we had a delegation came from a church in Malawi and uh, the son of, the, of a former minister in that church back in 1880 or so had gone out to Malawi uh, to bring the gospel to these people who had never heard of Jesus. And now, well over 100 years later, a delegation came from that church to Loch Gilpert to thank us, to thank us for what this man and his wife and family had done for them, had, had brought them out of darkness, had brought them into the glorious light of Jesus, all those years ago. And, you know, when you go into many a church, into the vestry, I don't know how many vestries you've been in, but there's often photographs of, uh, of former uh, ministers on the wall. And uh, in Loch Gilbert, the only photograph we had was an old sepia picture uh, of a, a Reverend Fraser. And it was his son who had gone to Malawi. And these Malawians were so delighted to... To, to see this picture. And we presented them with a, a great big 
leather-bound pulpit Bible that had been it was dated about 1880, and when they went back home, they, they, they built a special lectern, and they put this Bible on that lectern. It had the, the, the pride of place in their church, and all because somebody in the past uh, sacrificed themselves, as it were, to go out and to declare the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then the third thing is this, that they are a, a holy nation. They are a holy a nation. Kings rule over nations. It would be pointless being a king if you didn't have a, a nation to, to rule over. They exercise a sovereignty over a specific people. British people live all over the world, but they would always say that I am British. And having been to many parts of the world, I can tell you that British people abroad are even more British than the British people here who live in Britain. And our King, King Jesus, has, has set apart a people for himself, a people over whom he exercises his sovereignty, a people over whom he reigns. We are a holy nation. Country generally speaks of a, a geographical area. Scotland is a an area of great geographical diversity, high mountains and islands in one part of the country and, and uh, fertile plains in uh, other parts. But the term nation refers to the people who live there, uh, the nation, as the Corries once sang, who stood against proud Edward's army. But we, if we are Christians tonight, we are a holy a nation. And holy simply means to be set apart. The utensils that were used in the temple were holy because they had been set apart specifically for the service of the Lord. They were not to be used for everyday purposes. They were holy. And Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who came and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, he took all the, uh, the holy utensils and he put them in his own temple in his capital city of Babylon, but he was wise enough to leave them there and never to use them. But his son and his successor, Belshazzar, was not so wise. And as we read in the prophecy of Daniel, when he was drunk at a banquet, he ordered the golden goblets to be brought from the temple, to be brought into the banqueting hall. And he and his cronies filled them with wine and, and toasted the, the various idols whom they Worshipped, And then we, we read there in Daniel how this hand suddenly appeared and wrote on the wall and nobody understood the writing except Daniel himself. And he deciphered it for King Belshazzar, telling him that he had been weighed in the scales. He had been found wanting. And that very night his life was taken from him and somebody else ascended the throne. Our communion utensils are holy in that they have been set aside for ordinary use. If you wanted a glass of water, you wouldn't go and grab hold of the, the chalice that we use for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and take a drink from it. It's set aside for one specific purpose. I invited children from the local primary school to come into our church in Loch Gilbert, and I showed them the it wasn't communion silver we had, but communion pewter. We weren't that particularly well off. But I didn't let the kids handle 
uh, the chalice because I knew that some wise person would, would, or not so wise, would probably go cheers and I, I just did not want the, to take that risk. But we were able to explain to them the meaning of these things, that it was set apart uh, for us to remember the, uh, the, the suffering, the sacrifice of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, we read here, uh, they are a people uh, for his own uh, possession, or as it's put in the NIV, a people belonging to God. A people belonging to God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are no longer your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. The Christian has been purchased. The Christian has been redeemed, not with uh, money or silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we now belong to him. He is our Lord. That's the great anthem of the church, isn't it? Jesus is Lord. In Revelations 5, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Jesus did not shed his blood on the cross to redeem us that we might go off and do our own thing. But he saved us in order that we might serve him, that we might be his slaves, his doulos, his servants. But in serving him, in belonging to him, there lies our true and ultimate freedom. Because we're simply doing what God created us in the first place to do. And all these different terms that Peter uses here, uh, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people, they're all a collective terms. We read once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And that is our task collectively as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to declare the praises of him who called us out of a darkness. It's not just a task for the minister. It's not just a task for the elders or gifted individuals, but we all of us, every single one of us, have a role in uh, that work. Collectively, we've been set apart, called to declare his praises. And if we come from a Christ, if we have come from a Christ uh, less uh, existence, if we've been living in darkness and living in futility, as was the case for all of us at, at one stage, having no hope, how can we not declare the praises of him who has come and changed our lives? We are in the end times, as we're often told by theologians. We're awaiting the return of the king, and he will come one day, perhaps at a moment when we're simply not expecting him, and he will come to deal with his enemies, but also to reward his faithful servants, and he will want to know what did we do with the gift that he gave us of uh, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, while we're waiting we're not just to sit around, we're to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. When you go back into your life and you consider the futility of your former way of living and, and the worldview you had, the kind of things that you would argue about, the things that, that had a grip upon you, 
and then you look at your life today as you have come to be under the nurturing of the Holy Spirit, seeking to conform us to the likeness of Christ. We are new men and uh, new women. The born-again Christian is a sign, is a sign to the world in which we live, the miracle of the new birth, the miracle of a changed life. I probably told this story before, but in my father's village many years ago, there was a a man who uh, uh, had a very, what's the word, recalcitrant, he had a very unco- uncooperative milking cow. And uh, when he would milk the cow, it would stamp its feet, it would swish its tail. It just did not uh, cooperate. And uh, I was told that you could hear him shouting and swearing at the poor beast from across the other side of the village. And then one day, words spread like wildfire that so-and-so had been converted. You know, he had, he had found the kurum, he had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and uh, my father's best friend uh, as a boy, he was a man by, by that time, he said, he, he said very wisely, he says, I'll wait till he milks the cow before I uh, believe it, to see the evidence of a changed life, that what Jesus has truly done in him. So we have been saved, we have been rescued, we've been snatched from the jaws of death, and should we not, in thankfulness to the Lord, declare the praises of the one who by his amazing grace has brought us from darkness into his glorious light and into his kingdom. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to these thoughts and meditations on his word. Ever blessed and eternal God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the exhortations that we find in your word, that all we need to know about you is to be found here in scripture, and all that we need to know about ourselves in the light of you, our holy God, is to be found in scripture also, but it also tells us what is required of us, what we should do, that we should fall upon our knees and seek forgiveness for our many sins, doing so because we know we deal with a God of amazing grace who will not turn us away if we truly seek him. If there are any here tonight, Lord, who are as yet strangers to your grace, we pray that you would open their hearts and open their eyes and bring them to see the loveness, the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take away anything said this evening that's not in conformity with your word, and may the glory be yours and the blessings ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We conclude.